This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, joined me to delve deeply into the Australian economy. In particular, we looked at the experiences of Australian workers and businesses and how they've been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. We also discuss how and when Australia might experience an economic recovery. Then, Professor John Keane, a professor of politics at the University of Sydney and founder of the Sydney Democracy Network, joined me to talk about his recent book, The New Despotism. John examines the anti-democratic practices of despotic governments sweeping the globe. We also discuss the issues that democracy currently faces, including institutional dysfunction and public disillusionment. Then, finally, journalist and author Madeline Chapman joined me from New Zealand to discuss the influential and admired subject of her latest biography, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Madeline's book is called Jacinda Ardern, A New Kind of Leader. Joining me on the show, Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, which is based in Canberra. And we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Australian economy, where it stands at the moment and where to from here. Obviously, all in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, which, uh, of course, Australia is not the only nation affected, and it's all affecting countries in various ways. So I welcome Dr. Richard Dennis back to the show. Hi there, Richard. Good morning, and sorry for being the technical difficulty. <laughs> no worries. I'm taking them in my stride now. We're having them more often with the working from home stuff. Well, you've been very kind. It was my incompetence, and I apologise to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard, and no worries at all. Uh, it's so good to get you on the phone to talk about this. And I know that um, for some people, when they hear economics, it can be very confusing. And there's a lot of language that gets thrown about in the media when discussing the economy that kind of can go over people's heads if this isn't their everyday focus. And uh, I wanted to talk about some of the elements that are really important that do affect everyone um, right now. And I no doubt people already feel this um, in their own lives, so they can definitely relate. But first up, we saw Australia lock down its economy, essentially. It was still technically open. People, cafes were offering takeaway, um, you know, essential services were open. But it was a massively huge uh, closure that we saw lines down the street at Centrelink offices and um, huge numbers of people signing up for Job Seeker. And then, of course, slightly later on, we saw the Job Keeper package. So, first up, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, job the Job Keeper package, which has been touted as being a really important element to Australia's, um, I guess, managing the fallout. What do you think, first up, about? Um, this JobKeeper subsidy, wage subsidy, and whether it is going to be an effective mechanism considering the sectors that it does leave out, like the tertiary education sector? Uh, look, big, big picture, you know, if we, if we go back to January, we, we lived in a country where the government was adamant the most important thing this year was to deliver a budget surplus. And after coronavirus hit, 
they were adamant that the last thing we needed was a wage subsidy. Well, fast forward a few months and this government's uh, announced, announced but not spent $200 billion in new spending measures. It has completely abandoned the importance of having a budget surplus and it's done a complete backflip on the need for a wage subsidy. Uh, now, my colleagues at the Centre for Future Work, the Australia Institute, have have been advocating for a wage subsidy. And again, that was heresy at the beginning of the year. It's good that we have one now. But is it a well-designed uh, wage subsidy? No. Uh, it's very expensive, which from a macroeconomic point of view, that's a good thing. What it is is the federal government pushing a lot of money into the economy at precisely the time that households are spending less uh, um, businesses are spending less and that we can export less. So spending a lot of money is a good thing, but we still need to think about where it's aimed and how it's targeted. And the decision to leave out a lot of casual workers, I, I just think was not just cruel, but bad policy design because casuals really were the first ones to get hit and helping them isn't just fair, it's a good way to pump money into the economy. Similarly, the decision to leave out uh, a lot of people on temporary visas, people who we invited to our country to, to, to work in our factories, to work in our restaurants, uh, they, they came here to work. We asked them to come here and to, to then say, well, you've lost your job, but we're not going to help look after you. Again, I think it's cruel. Uh, and from a from a macroeconomic point of view, they're the front line. They're the people that get shed first. Uh, helping prop up their income is is a great way uh, to stimulate the economy. So, the the size of the JobKeeper package, the original one, but by original I mean the the original mm. estimate of size, 130 billion, uh, about right. But the shape of it, I think, is really quite wrong especially leaving out those most vulnerable groups. Uh, and then, of course, we've found out over the weekend that uh, we're looking for a massive... We're looking at a massive underspend on the JobKeeper package, which is a real problem. That means the government's doing less to stimulate the economy than we thought. Yeah, by a substantial figure, isn't it, really? I think a lot of people were surprised that you could be out by $60 billion. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen, Richard? Oh, look, we really still don't know, uh, and 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 let's let's go up a level here. What we should all now know is that long-run economic forecasts are nonsense. Like, we can't even get a short-run forecast right for uptake of these. Yet we live in a world where we're told that we should ignore climate scientists because some economists says in 30 years' time, GDP will be a bit smaller. Well, we now know that those forecasts are rubbish. <laughs> we, can't, we can't take a short-term projection to the bank. Why, why would we worry about a 30-year economic modelling projection? How did they get it so wrong? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're, we're blaming households for... Uh, sorry, we're blaming small businesses for, for, for filling out the form wrong. Um, I don't doubt that some people did fill out the form wrong, but uh, the Treasury was estimating the size of this program way before the form was designed, and this form was getting filled out for a month before anyone noticed these enormous errors in it. So 
Luckily, uh, we did set up an oversight committee, a parliamentary oversight committee, uh, and Josh Frydenberg has been called to appear before that committee. Uh, and we now need to know a number of things. One, how was the original forecast so wrong? And two, entirely unrelated, how did it take so long to figure out that the amount of money being sent out was far less? Than, than we were told it was. Um, the forecast was wrong and the administration was bungled. They're separate mistakes. Mm. And if we think about the forecast, Treasury was estimating 6.5 million Australians would be on this JobKeeper payment. Does that mean that Treasury was thinking and the government were thinking that, well, we need to be supporting this many, this proportion of Australians that we need to? Because at the moment it's standing at a bit over 3 million uh, Australians on this payment. Yes. Uh, look, to be honest, the, the the original size of the program never made a lot of sense. Uh, I'm going to have to throw a few numbers around here, but but let's think big picture. Um, worst case scenario, most economists thought maybe one or at worst two million people might lose their jobs as a result of this recession. And now one or two million people losing their jobs is enormous. The JobKeeper package, we were told, was designed to support 6 million jobs. Well, if, if worst-case scenario is 2 million people lose their job and you're subsidising 6 million jobs, then at least two-thirds of that money isn't a wage subsidy, it's an employer subsidy. So... Mm. The six million number never made a lot of sense, so I'm not surprised that we're massively underspending on that because no economist thought six million people were going to lose their jobs. And, and similarly, if, if six million people worked in workplaces where revenue was falling by more than 30%, and that's the criteria you're most firms have to meet. You have to see revenue fall by 30% to be eligible. Uh, then if if half the workforce worked in companies where revenue fell by more than 30%, then the impact on GDP would have been a lot bigger than a 10% cut. So, again, let's get to the bottom of what Treasury's forecast was based on, but uh, a wage subsidy paid for half the workers in the country is when no one thinks half the workers were going to lose their jobs is actually an employer subsidy in large part. Yes, that is very interesting. And uh, and it's been interesting to see the types of responses employers have had to this. I remember when the shutdown started happening, there was almost in some businesses a knee-jerk reaction to just kind of cut uh, casual hours almost instantly. And we did see those people losing their jobs very quickly, almost overnight. And some people saying, oh, well, you know, JobKeeper came after. Now these people... Um, are going to be on Job Seeker, which is essentially what used to be called New Start. And I was looking at the figures um, that came out in mid-May about who had been claiming um, this Job Seeker allowance. And uh, in interestingly, 
Um, from March to April, there was a 51.5% increase in recipients of job seeker and youth allowance. Um, but what, what I was quite surprised by, and I'd like to get your understanding on this, was that there was a nearly 100% increase in women aged 25 to 34 accessing welfare payments. What do you think about the kind of demographics that we've seen emerge about who's been hit and who's been receiving um, these job seeker payments? Yeah, look, it's, it's uh, the, the terrible reality of any recession, uh, and we're headed for a very big one. Um, the terrible reality is that we don't all share the pain evenly. Uh, again, just to throw a few numbers around, uh, if, if the main impact of a recession is that unemployment goes up by 10%, what that means is that 10% of the workforce pops 100% of the pain and a lot of us actually aren't affected at all. So recessions are incredibly unfair because while we talk about the impact on the economy or we talk about the impact on the unemployment rate, uh, the fact is the majority of Australians, probably the vast majority of Australians, uh, won't become unemployed, but a million or two million Australians are going to endure enormous financial and psychological pain. So so we have to look at the distribution. It, it, if we talk about the economy too much, if we talk about the unemployment rate too much, we miss the fact that some individuals are having a terrible time uh, and a lot of people are actually not. So who are these people that are having these, this terrible time? Well, we know that they came out of the retail sector, the hospitality sector, uh, the arts and the entertainment communities and industries, and those industries uh, rely disproportionately on younger people and disproportionately on women. So guess who gets hit hardest? Young people who are women. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean there aren't older people suffering disadvantage. Of course there are. And it doesn't mean there aren't some middle-aged people. Of course there are. We need to help people who need help. But, but let's be clear, uh, the, the group that's getting left out of job seeker, uh, sorry, of job keeper, more generous support, are a bunch of casuals. They're more likely to be young and they're more likely to be female. Uh, so, yes, yeah, sadly, it's, it's quite predictable that we see a lot of uh, younger women surging in their claims for the lower, less generous job seeker payment. Uh, it's because we made them ineligible for the job keeper payment. Mm, yeah, and these are all decisions that government makes, usually with well, their yeah. eyes wide open. Well, you have to draw the line somewhere, Amy. <laughs> um, you know, it's what a ridiculous response that was mm -hmm. from the government. You know, why did you choose to, to consign this demographic group to poverty? Well, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Well, well that's exactly right. You do. Mm. So why did you choose to draw it there? Exactly. It's a statement of the obvious that lines need to be drawn, uh, and we are none the wiser as to why they drew it in such a way that it would have such a terrible impact on younger workers and, and, and younger female workers in particular. Mm. 
Yeah, exactly. And to pick up on what you've been discussing about the fact that when we're talking about the economy and the unemployment rate, it can be very depersonalised. It also can be very confusing as to what we're really talking about. And um, I just wanted to clarify for everyone who's listening and understand from you what um, we mean by the headline unemployment rate and what the real unemployment rate might be when these two kind of figures or predictions are being thrown about by Treasury last week in that um, select committee that has oversight over COVID-19. He was saying that the number of Australians out of work is potentially more like 15% uh, given the headline unemployment rate doesn't truly represent the effect of JobKeeper. What does he mean by that? Oh, yeah. Settle in. (laughs) This will take a little while. Um, Look, all all statistics uh, have to be based on very careful definitions. Uh, Radio rating statistics, uh, podcast download statistics and unemployment statistics. They all are based on very strict definitions and the definitions have to be stable over time if you want to compare what happened between one period and the next. So just big picture, it's not a conspiracy to hide unemployment that we have a very weird definition of it. We cooked up the definition back in the 1960s and about the only thing that hasn't changed in the Australian labour market since the 1960s is the definition of how we measure and define unemployment. So it's not a conspiracy, but it is a problem. It's a big problem. So the first thing to know is that when we talk about the unemployment rate, we're talking about a survey that's done by the Australian Bureau of Statistics every month where where they interview around 30,000 households. That's a huge survey. Most polls in a newspaper might ask a 1,000 people a question, The ABS asks 30,000 households, nearly 60,000 people. It's a huge survey, but it's a survey. It's just a survey. And the 60 or so thousand people that get surveyed get asked a couple of questions in a particular order. And one of the questions is, did you work for more than one hour last week? If you worked for more than one hour last week, you were employed. And if you're employed, you can't be unemployed. The definition. So anyone who worked for more than an hour last week is employed, according to the official definition. The official definition doesn't say being employed means you've got enough money to live on. The official definition of unemployment doesn't mean you're happy with your hours. It's just a statistical definition. So people who work for more than one hour, they're employed. And the people who didn't work for more than one hour get asked a bunch of follow-up questions, including, are you ready to start work straight away? And were you actively seeking work? Now, if you aren't ready to start work straight away because you, for example, would have to line up some childcare for your kids, and if you are kind of keen to get a job but not ready to start instantly, we say you're not unemployed. And if you're not working and are ready to start, didn't bother looking for a job last week because you thought there's no chance of finding one, we say you're not unemployed. So the official definition of unemployed is didn't work 
for more than an hour, ready to start actively seeking. Now, that tells us something interesting over time. It's an important number. But there's millions of people who are not statistically defined as unemployed by the Australian Bureau of Statistics who'd like a job, who would like more hours, uh, or uh, uh, would like a job and can't start instantly. So we've got to understand that the unemployment rate is just a very narrow definition. And when we ask broader questions like, how many people need more work, we get a much bigger number than how many people are officially defined as unemployed. Mm. And why do you think that that number, the, the second one you're talking about, doesn't really get utilised in public debates all that often? Is it because governments want to tout their economic credentials with the former? Uh, yeah, um, and while everyone knows everyone inside sort of politics and economics knows the problems with the using the the narrow definition of unemployment at least we can all agree what the problems are once i start saying why don't we use this number instead someone says no no i've got a better different number to use and then the mm. third person says, I've got a better different number to use. So the, the one thing we can all agree with is that the unemployment rate is, you know, imperfect, but at least we all know what its imperfections are. Uh, but for describing what's happening in Australia in a time like this, it's, it's actually quite a, useless, quite a useless indicator, especially when we've got a new program like JobKeeper it's literally paying some people uh, to not work. So the unemployment rate, again, it's not a conspiracy, but it's really not helpful for describing what's happening in the Australian labour market today. Yeah, exactly. And so when we're looking at those people who are looking for work or on JobKeeper, um, that's a, a kind of, as we know, a temporary measure, a temporary solution in the government's mind. It has a very definite finish date based in legislation. Um, and to them, that's it um, at the moment. That's what they say. And uh, then we'll just kind of go back to, to normal or we'll find another strategy, you know, after that point. There isn't really a clear idea at this, at this very moment what happens after these payments finish. What are your thoughts on that situation and the government's expectations of the economy and how the economy is meant to rebound? Yeah, look, I mean that's the really that's the scary part. The the government the government's rhetoric and the design of policies like JobKeeper uh, have all revolved around the idea that the economy will snap back. Although I notice the prime minister has stopped using that phrase. So the the design principle is the economy will snap back and that we'll have a so-called business-led recovery. Um there's no theoretical or historical reason to believe that will happen. Um, economies don't snap back. They grind back slowly or they get dragged by the scruff of the neck by an interventionist government. And just fantasising that in a couple of months' time everything will snap back is the most dangerous decision that this government has made. So think of it this way. 
unemployment is rising, consumer spending is falling. So consumers aren't going to drag us out of this. Um, The world economy is slowing and our tourism industry and our education industry has been shut down. So exports aren't going to drag us out of this. The housing industry has new starts for housing has collapsed because people are afraid to start building something new in such an uncertain time. The housing isn't going to drag us out of this. (laughs) And one thing that could drag us out of this is old-fashioned government spending, not just on concrete and construction, but on job creation in all sorts of industries. But the government at the moment Rather than saying, we will step in, we will fill the hole left by consumers and uh, our exports and our construction industry, rather than the government saying, we will step in, we will spend to fill that hole, the government is promising that it's about to cut spending. So, yeah, history and theory says that government needs to step in and fill that hole uh, it started off right, you know, with big numbers for JobKeeper, but that was always just going to be the beginning. And rather than double down on that and say, right, and here's what we're going to do next to keep this economy going for the next 12, 18 months, what they're actually doing is saying, well, I've done my bit, so you know, let's see that business lead us out of this recovery. But why would a company expand a factory when its sales are falling? Why, why would a company put on new staff when its sales are below the level they were at last year? It just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And I was thinking there when you're mentioning the international factors and the situation, obviously given this is a pandemic, it's on a global scale, it means that Australia is uh, struggling like everyone else to obviously varying degrees. Um, But there was one area that Australia tended to rely upon in the past, um, which is of course mining and iron ore and these kind of sectors to keep us up and um, still growing the economy is certainly in times of uh, crisis. And I was thinking about the US-China trade war and the ongoing and probably I guess you could say escalating tensions between Australia and China at the moment. What do you think about that factor, the international factor, particularly the key trading partners that we have, um, also kind of changing their forecasts? And in fact, uh, China saying that they will not forecast a GDP um, for the year. So that's a, a kind of another development. What do you think about Australia's connection with the rest of the world on a trade level and how that will affect our recovery? Yeah, it's a bad time for a trade war. Um <laughs> Look, well, big picture, you know, coal, coal mining in Australia employs less than half a percent of the population. 99.5% of Australians don't work in coal mining. Uh, iron ore, add all the whole mining industry together, uh, you get around 2% of the workforce. So I think we have to be careful thinking that somehow mining keeps us all employed or mining's the backbone of the economy. Look, the, the mining industry spends a lot of money on ads suggesting it is, but, you know, the, the top secret agency known as the Australian Bureau of Statistics hides the data on their website that shows anyone that wants to look that 98% of us don't work in mining. 
um, you know, the, the impact of foreign students not coming to Australia will have a much bigger, and that, which is an export, mm. just as iron ore is an export, our education sector is an export earner, uh, the, the drying up of foreign students will cost far more jobs uh, than, 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 the, than the mining industry. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a good time to have a trade war. Uh, and, you know, I really think that the, the Australian government has for quite some time taken, taken credit for the fact that China's economy was growing strongly and that a growing Chinese economy bought a lot of our raw materials. So it's interesting, when, when, when China's economy was growing fast, that's proof of great economic management in Australia... <laughs> But when China's economy slows down, oh, it's got nothing to do with us, you know, boo-hoo, the world's picking on us. So, uh, you know, you can't blame politicians for, for spinning things, but the, the, the incredible growth in China's economy in the last 20 years uh, had nothing to do with our decision-making, uh, but it led to enormous demand for resources that we happened to have. Um, that, was, that was a good time for us. So now, now we're seeing what the consequences of China's economy not growing are. Mm. But we, we shouldn't we shouldn't have taken credit for it in the past. And you know, it's beyond our control in the present. We we just have to make decisions that work for us. And we can't just sit back and wish wish that communist China was better at managing the economy. I mean, that's the ultimate irony in Australia that that the free marketeers in Australia uh, take credit for the economic success of the communists in China. <laughs> it is very ironic given the current discussion and, um, yeah, I guess ostracisation of some of the uh, diplomats from China here in Australia. It is really interesting to watch. I wanted to also touch on something that's been – I mean, it's come up many times before, but in this situation we're in, it's become a very strong point, which is that renewable energy has always been an option for Australia, a, a sector to grow that it has room for growth and, of course, would make a whole lot of sense. And we've seen the Climate Council uh, come out last week talking about how we should be focusing on renewables and obviously not about gas, which has been put forward by a number of people from that uh lobby to say that that's our way through this. And um, I wondered what your thoughts were on energy and the renewable energy sector and how that could play a role or not in our economic recovery. Yeah, look, the Australia Institute published a paper oh, a month or so back now on, on good criteria for evaluating all of the job creation projects that are being bandied around. So not, not what's the best thing to spend money on, but what's actually the best way to decide what to spend money on. And, and, and our, our paper can be summarised as eight criteria in the paper, but in, in short, the key ones are we should focus on projects that are labour-intensive, that, that for every million dollars you spend, you're creating as many jobs as you can, because not all industries... Uh, create the same number of jobs per dollar spent. Uh, the aged care industry is very labour-intensive. Uh, the, the, the gas and mining industry is very capital-intensive. It just doesn't have many jobs. It's got a lot of machines, not a lot of jobs. So good for us, good stimulus spending is on labour-intensive industries that are in the local communities experiencing lots of unemployment, 
And so again, let's think about this. We've just laid off hundreds of thousands of workers in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. I know. Let's build a gas pipeline in northwest Western Australia. Okay? Not actually going to help any of the people that just lost their job. So let's evaluate these things, right? So labour-intensive in the local communities that matter, and hopefully the things we spend the money on have lasting benefits. And that means that in 10 years' time, when we look at them, we'll go, oh, I'm glad we built that. I'll give you some examples. During the Great Depression, we built all those beautiful Art Deco ocean baths along the east coast of New South Wales. Every time you look at one and think, oh, Art Deco, aren't they nice? Think, yeah, built at the poorest time in Australian history. We actually had labour-intensive construction projects near the cities where the unemployment was, and a century later, we're still enjoying the benefits of those things. If you apply those criteria, uh, you know, comparing building a gas pipeline to putting solar panels on thousands of schools and community buildings, it's pretty obvious which one's more labour-intensive near where the unemployed people are that will deliver lasting benefits. But no one likes it when I say this, but it's it's true. I said before, 98% of us don't work in mining. Maybe 1%, 2% of us might work in renewable energy one day. That leaves 96% of people that are never going to work in the mining industry and never going to work in the renewable energy industry. We need to... Yes, of course we should spend money building and installing a lot of renewable energy right now. There's no reason not to. We need to do a lot more than that at the same time. So, yeah, go local, go go, uh, go labour-intensive and go lasting benefits. They're the criteria we should use to evaluate every proposal that's put forward. Um, gas projects in northwestern Australia, capital-intensive, not many jobs, nowhere near the huge pool of unemployed people, and in 10 years' time, the world's going to want less fossil fuels, not more. Hard to think up a dumber project, really. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. It does sound like you're using a lot of logic there, Richard, which is scary. Um, I just wanted to finish our chat talking about something that you have often talked about at the Australia Institute, which is superannuation um, <laughs> and just how important it is. And one of the most controversial things at this time is the coalition government enabling people to apply to release funds from their superannuation retirement savings. Um, could you just share with us where we're at with that policy and how detrimental it might be to uh, people who will not be getting the compound interest they would have had if they'd let, kept their super as it was? Yeah, so look, big picture, there were always hardship provisions for people accessing their superannuation because, frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense for people that are, were living on a very meagre unemployment benefit or had a terminal illness to, to be saving for... Uh, you know, a better retirement that they might never enjoy. So we've always had hardship provisions. What the government's done is make it a lot easier for people to access those. And, you know, a lot of people are, at, at uh, you know, causing a lot of problems for, for some super funds that all of a sudden people are making unexpected withdrawals. I don't have a philosophical problem with uh, existence of hardship provisions, but I think it's pretty rude that 
as a first port of call, we've, we've said to young casuals, we're going to exempt you from an expensive JobKeeper program. Uh, we're going to provide you no real additional support whatsoever, but you can go and pull 10 grand out of your super if you want to. So we're, we're giving a lot of help to solve traders. We're giving a lot of help uh, to a lot of industries. We've deliberately, willfully drawn the line in such a way that a lot of young casuals uh, miss out on quite generous support. And then we've said to them, but you can go take the money out of your super. So uh, hardship provisions, people having access to super, it's always been there. It's not a terrible idea. But we created the hardship that's making those young people draw on their own savings when other groups are getting very large uh, amounts of support from the government. So we kind of create their hardship and we tell them that they can fund it themselves uh, and yes, that's going to have a very big impact on their uh, retirement income in the future. And again, I think the solution is is to not cause them so much hardship by by, by extending JobKeeper and providing a lot more support. Mm. And anecdotally, there were a number of young people saying that their real estate agents were telling them that maybe they should consider taking that um, super out to pay their rent. So that was another kind of element to the hardship and the stress and strain that uh, people were under when there wasn't a very clear solution to people who felt they would not be able to uh, afford their rent? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, this is the point that we've, we've created the hardship <laughs> and, mm. and then given them access to the hardship provisions. Uh, I, I don't mind the existence of the hardship provisions. I just wish we weren't deliberately creating so much hardship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the one positive thing I'm guessing is that childcare has become uh, far more accessible and uh, subsidised at such a higher rate. Um, do you think that's a win from this situation? Uh, enormously. And, you know, just as I think the government will find it hard to uh, drop unemployment benefits back to their obscene, cruel poverty levels that they were at, uh, I think the government, while it's at the moment, it's adamant that it will return to the previous policies on childcare. I, I think it's time that well, a, I think that'll be hard for them to do. Uh, but b, I think the government, looking at the economic situation, hopefully will understand that this is even if they have some bizarre long-term determination to to charge young parents for going to work. Um, now is not the time to, to revert to that. So, yes, I, I do think that's quite positive. Um, as I said, I think the government's done a number of things that you'd, you'd really hope and expect them to do, but what they don't, because they're convinced the economy's going to snap back, uh, because they believe there's some business-led recovery hiding under a rock that'll pop up in September, uh, the government still seems determined to say it'll cut job seeker, it'll cut job keeper, it'll go back to the old arrangements for childcare. Uh, I think they'll figure out in the coming months that that's not going to happen, and, and and hopefully that means they can start to give people a bit more certainty and provide um, the, the long term support that the economy is going to need. Mm. Richard, thanks so much for your time today and your insights. It's been really valuable and I know um, I've understood the situation a lot better. So thank you so much for that.
Oh, thank you, and apologies for the beginning, but thanks for having me on. <laughs> no stress. Thanks very much, Richard. Yes, bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm very pleased to have with me on Skype Professor John Keane, who is a professor in politics at the University of Sydney, and he's also um, a, a key person in the Sydney Democracy Network um, and has been uh, associated with that group for a very long time. I believe he may have even founded it. Um, and it's great to have John back because uh, as I was jogging my memory, I spoke with him in July 2017, uh, talking on a similar subject, um, which clearly uh, was some of the early um, beginning ideas around this book, which is just so fantastic, and uh, it's out through Harvard University Press. It's called The New Despotism, and uh, we are going to get straight into it and talk about uh, the new despotism and also uh, democracy. So I welcome John Keane now, political thinker and expert on all things democracy and despotism. Hi there, John. Hi, I'm very glad to be with you. It's great to have you on the show and thanks for your patience in this time. We have a few more technical difficulties than normal during the coronavirus, but it's so great to be with you via Skype. Uh, Congratulations on this book, by the way, which is uh, a really great read and I know it is uh, technically for an academic audience given the publisher, but it is very much accessible to anyone who wants to read it. Yeah, I tried to, to write it beautifully, Amy, and um, it's a pretty gloomy subject, but uh, uh, there are quite a few jokes in it, uh, which I um, think will make readers laugh at some of the absurdities of uh, uh, of the regimes that I'm trying to, to analyze. Uh, you know, it's a book that uh, talks about Russia, China, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, Singapore, Vietnam, uh, uh, and quite a few others. And there are moments in in these regimes that are Alice in Wonderland moments. uh, And you really have to to chuckle, you know, shouting sheep and talking flowers and all that. Um, So, for example, I tell the story of of, uh, uh, Prime Minister Edoyan in Turkey, who keeps saying that the rise of Turkey won't be blocked by anybody but God. And he, he, you know, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, but it's said often. Or I tell the story, um, probably not known to listeners about Kim Jong-un, uh, on every uh, visit, uh, state visit that he makes outside of North Korea, uh, you may not know that his feces and his urine are bagged up because he's a paranoid uh, about, you know, being tested by by other countries. Um, but the book uh, is, aside from the jokes and the, the Alice in Wonderland moments, the book is about a pretty serious subject, uh, the rise uh, of uh, a new kind of power that I call despotism. Uh, and what I try to do in this book is to bring some un common sense uh, to, 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 to grasping what's at stake here. 
Yes, very nice segue or tie in there. And um, you have been looking at, interestingly, democracy for such a long time, and that is very much linked in with this discussion of despotism. And you talk and compare about the two and the tensions and also the expectations on um, from the West, quote-unquote, of uh-huh. these types of countries that you describe as despotic and, and and having the characteristic features of despotism and the expectation that they're in this kind of transition period, that they will eventually kind of find the light and, um, you know, move into the promised land of liberalism and democracy. Could you talk with us about, um, first up, just for people who may not be, you know, um, introduced to the world of political theory, when we're talking about democracy in this context and democratic governments and processes, what do we really mean by that? Uh, I mean, to put things very very simply, um, a way of life and a way of handling power, a way of governing governing well, where there is power sharing, uh, where there are free and fair elections, yes, but something much more. There, there is a check and balance of uh, among institutions. There is rule of law. And generally, um, those who exercise power are accountable uh, to citizens. Um, what is, of course, things are not going very well mm. in uh, actually existing democracies. I begin the book uh, with um, a summary account of all the, all the rotten things that are, are going on. Look at what is happening in the United States, for instance. Uh, but what I say in this book is that um, democracies described in this way, I'm thinking of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and, you know, Britain, Germany, France, uh, South Africa, for instance, that democracies um, are not only not doing very well in this period, you know, growing gap between rich and poor, a lot of fake news, a lot of disgruntled people, young people left out uh, from the labor market and so on, that not only all of that is going on, but um, there is the rise of an alternative to power sharing constitutional democracy. And this alternative, uh, which is led by China uh, uh, and includes those other states that I mentioned, that that alternative, which I call despotism, is a serious alternative to power sharing uh, democracy. And what is striking, Amy, um, that I tried to uh, explain uh, in good prose in this book, What is striking about these despotisms is their resilience. Um, You know, there is the expectation that that in the West that if you apply economic sanctions uh, or if you do tough diplomacy work or maybe threaten militarily, they will collapse. I think um, it's the opposite. I think uh, our democracies are now uh, facing a serious 21st century alternative uh, and The reason I use uh, despotism, it's a very old word, to describe these uh, regimes is because they practice, those who rule in these regimes uh, are very skilled at winning the loyalty of uh, their populations. Uh, These are systems of voluntary servitude, as I, I call it. You know, the middle classes of these despotisms are largely loyal. They go shopping, um, they grumble, 
uh, but they don't disrupt the regime. And so the idea of the book is that the, this new despotism of these early years of the 21st century is a serious alternative. They're going to be around for a while, so we'd better begin thinking about them. We'd better beginning, begin you know, practicing some uncommon sense about them in order to um, best defend uh, ways of life that we, we consider precious. Uh, they are a threat to democracy, uh, but they're resilient. Yes, and uh, I know that China, in discussions I've had with um, other scholars on the different subjects, but it has come up that China sees their model of government and model of governing as a, as a success story, particularly because it is across such a vast expanse and such a large population. And it seems like their rationale can often be, well, for such a huge country like ours, something different is needed. Democracy would be a disaster. What are your thoughts yeah. on how China has set this up? Well, if you, I, I think you're absolutely right, Amy. If you look at um, the present dynamic, you know, in this great pestilence that we're living through and suffering by, uh, it all began, it was hatched uh, in China. There is no doubt about that. But um, it then clamped down and it, um, the regime has handled a pestilence. And, you know, the great irony is that um, China will be uh, the first country to stand up uh, while much of the world has down. And yes, at the moment, inside China, there is um, a lot of regime uh, uh, news. Some of it is fake. Uh, and, a, and a strong sense among the middle classes that uh, China has done well during this pestilence. And, of course, um, uh, the propaganda points to the United States, which is a basket case. You know, the United States is acting like a wild beast led by, some would say, a lunatic. And, you know, why, why uh, say many Chinese people, you know, why would we ever want that kind of uh, regime? Uh, the question then becomes, and what I try to do in this book at, at some length, is to analyze <clears throat> the sources of resilience of the China model, uh, which is reflected in Russia and Kazakhstan and Vietnam and other regimes. You know, um, it's not all that straightforward, but uh, the, the sources of loyalty to the regime don't expect it to collapse uh, overnight. Uh, during this period. The sources of, of resilience are, there are many. You know, the state um, has a major welfare program. More than two-thirds of GDP uh, is, is processed by the Chinese state. Um, all of them, all of these despotisms, China included, have a loyal middle class. All of them cultivate connections among people. In China, it's called Guangxi. The Russians call it blood. Uh, you know, everybody is dependent upon everybody else. And um, it's also important to understand that these despotisms, China included, camouflage violence. Uh, you know, they, they kill chickens to scare monkeys, as the Chinese proverb has it. Uh, violence is stocking masked. China is also a despotism that rules through law. You know, there's lots of talk of law. Look 
at what they are now passing um, uh, by means of law uh, to deal with Hong Kong and so on. One thing, finally, that's important to understand about these despotisms, and China is the leader of the pack and among the most sophisticated, is the way they, they institutionalize learning mechanisms. You know, they learn um, uh, about their mistakes. Uh, they, they try to recalibrate um, policies, strategies of governing. So they rely on think tanks. Um, all of these despotisms, China included, use uh, uh, public opinion polling agencies using pretty state-of-the-art methodology. Um, Singapore is probably the most advanced case of these learning mechanisms. It has a REACH program, for example. In the UAE, in the Emirates, uh, there are happiness forums, you know, <laughs> public forums where people are encouraged, subjects are encouraged to talk about their sources of unhappiness. Uh, and in general, these despotisms, China included, try to build in a measure of accountability. Uh, of uh, They try to build in sunshine into a form of government, which is, of course, top-down. It's anti-democratic. It has, I call these uh, despotisms, phantom democracies, and China is included in this category. So that's all a long-winded way of saying that uh, China has a lot of internal resilience, you know, sources of resilience. Uh, and a period, Amy, where I think the rise of China, the development of something like a Chinese empire, will gallop ahead of that of the United States, and which is suffering uh, in this period. Uh, um, and dysfunctional uh, in many ways, you know, fighting between states and, and Washington and so on. And it's, if that's the case, then um, little Australia is going to have to get uh, smart um, about how we deal uh, with, with a new despotism of the Chinese kind. Uh, war, I think, Cold War is not a solution. Uh, being smarter uh, is necessary, uh, and I think one of the conditions of getting smarter is to, you know, develop some uncommon sense about um, how uh, the regime, the Chinese regime, actually functions. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting that you brought in there America, and I know um, they are not in the despotic regimes we're talking about at all, but they are, as you say, a basket case, and uh, they seem to be in their own special category at the moment, given how influential and significant they are on the world stage, and yet what they're well, doing is quite uh, concerning. Yeah, there is a sting in the tail of... Um my new book, uh, Amy, mm. uh, halfway through reading it, I expect that most readers, uh, it's not a difficult slog, most readers will begin to say, hmm, that's quite interesting, uh, uh, your description of this and that in these despotisms, because quite a lot of this uh, is going on inside our democracies. Mm. And uh, that is the point of the book to warn that um, unless we get smarter and pay attention, you know, to the, the things that are not going well inside our democracy, 
ellipses, that we will drift um, in the direction of these despotisms. And one uh, example of this, I think, is what number 45 is doing to the United States. I don't use his name anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I give you a few examples. All of these despotisms use elections, and there's lots of talk of the people. Uh, he does it uh, very well. All of these despotisms um, basically dismantle rule of law. You know, they neuter um, the courts. They don't like um, check and balance institutions. And there are many examples where number 45 is doing this uh, in the United States, you know, closing down accountability uh, mechanisms, neutering the Congress. Um, he's now got control of the Supreme Court. Um, and one final example, you know, uh, number 45 is a peddler of, of fake news. Um, he's he's uh, a master of gaslighting, as we call it. And of course, these regimes also do that. So one thought that runs through this book is that if he were reelected, which is now looking likely, uh, um, and continues on this pathway, then the United States uh, no longer uh, can be described as a constitutional power-sharing uh, democracy with free and fair elections. Uh, it's actually, uh, it will have um, many more despotic qualities. And um, it may be that we're witnessing uh, the, the growing grip of that trend in the United States. Uh, I call it a basket case. Um, it's a basket case because it, it, there's a lot of dysfunctionality in the system and a lot of belly aching and so on. But you can see a pattern beginning to crystallize where um, democracy will be no more in the United States. And that, that would be of uh, immense historical importance. One thing is clearer. I think, until probably five years ago in Australia, politicians and journalists and uh, some citizens used to say that uh, our priority is the American alliance because the American way of life is ours. Well, as each day passes, I think that's less and less true. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we did see uh, over the weekend... But perhaps I'm just... Perhaps I'm just um, uh, 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 pre to the converted because down there in Victoria, you know, with um, with with uh, comrade Dan, Dan <laughs> uh, your premier, uh, you know, you, you've 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 you're you're developing developing, let's say, some uncommon sense about um, uh, regional and global geopolitics. Mm. I would say, and it's a breath of fresh air. I would say. Yes, I have seen a lot of memes about the People's Republic of Victoria, which is. <laughs> amusing but um it, it, it is getting a bit silly because the the media are actually starting to use uh liberal national attack lines like dictator dan which is um you know funny but not that helpful but you do point out a really good uh area of follow-up and one that i was interested in before we move into um some of these uh examples you have in the book i wanted to ask about how you see america then 
I mean, they do have these despotic qualities, but we even saw over the weekend Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying that potentially America could just disconnect from Australia if Victoria's plan to... uh, proceed with the Belt and Road Initiative with China goes ahead. I mean, that was quickly backtracked, but America seems to have these strange thought bubbles that really are making them look more and more like a pariah state in comparison to what they used to be under the Obama administration. And I wonder how do we characterise America when it engages in these kind of crazy behaviours? Well, um I think that uh, in my work I've been writing and um, trying to say that uh, there were three uh, democratic empires in the history of democracy. Athens, uh, revolutionary Napoleonic France, and the United States. Uh, And um, it's no accident that um, the ideals of liberal democracy uh, with an American accent, uh, uh, you know, were part and parcel of the past generation because the United States um, functioned as a global empire. Of course, in competition with the, with, uh, the Soviet Union, it collapsed in uh, 1989 to 91. For a brief period, the United States was um, uh, the, only, the only game in town uh, that's no longer the case. What I try to say in this book is that these new despotisms are now a serious alternative to that of um, American imperial power. And what I think uh, we're beginning to see uh, slowly and probably irreversibly is the crumbling of that empire. Um, no longer uh, particularly uh, popular in Europe. An empire that has basically uh, withdrawn from large parts of the Middle East uh, during a pestilence. No relief efforts championed by the United States. China, yes. Um, A lot of internal fighting inside of the empire. Um, A lot of uh, many signs of decadence, you know, the growing gap between rich and poor. Um, A disaffected population. You know, at least half of Americans uh, in the course of the last two months have lost income uh, or personally or someone in their household has lost income uh, in an already squeezed uh, situation Um, with a demagogue, you know, at the helm. Lots of talk of the people. Well, I'm beginning to think I'm not the only one that what we are witnessing is um, the the decadence of an empire that that no longer uh, is able to govern globally and is now faced with a self-confident China that um, is outpacing the United States, even technologically. An example, you know, there is pressure has been pressure here and in the UK and in other contexts to boycott uh, Huawei and its 5G technology. Actually, Huawei um, no longer needs um, American technology, and it will it will thrive without the United States. That is one marker, I think, 
of uh, of the the weakening of the United States, and of course this has implications for democracy because it was once um, proudly the guardian of democracy. Since 2016, um, number 45 almost never mentions the word. You know, he's not interested in uh, uh, what, its fate uh, as a set of ideals um, elsewhere in the world. And that's a sign, I think, of this uh, crumbling of a global power. And uh, uh, we need to pay attention to that because it has implications for how we are going to um, behave, how we're going to operate, how we're going to thrive in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, exactly. We have neighbours all around us who we should be engaging with and um, probably at a more culturally aware level as well than where we currently are at. Um, yes. In, in terms of one of the quotes I really like, which I think is um, a good spring point into these uh, despotisms, new despotisms, is that you say the new despotisms are in fact reactions against the ideals and practical mistakes and failures of power-sharing democracy. They are yeah. like parasites feeding upon democracy's present dysfunctions. As such, they are not to be judged as cases of failed transition. And yep. so if we're looking then to these alternate models that are uh, broadly char characterised as a new despotism, because as you say, this is very new, um, you highlight a bit later on the fact that uh, it is essentially something new under the sun. Uh, they have roots yep. in the past, but they are definitely not what our forebears knew. So if, mm -hmm. they're, if they're rooted in the past, but they are not um, what we might associate with traditional language and concepts of despotism, in terms of the examples you give in the, the book, maybe we can take China or Russia because there's some you know, pretty big examples that people might be familiar with. How do we um, examine their behaviours and understand, as you say, where the resilience comes from and how these have become over time a viable alternative and a reaction against democracy? Well, I would say, you know, uh, try to read the book. <laughs> wouldn't I? Uh, I? I think um, I think first of all, Amy, it's a, a a great question. I think that it's important um, for listeners to understand that what's new about these uh, regimes, the kind of power that they manage, that they embody, is that they're not describable. Uh, through old-fashioned terms. They are not tyrannies. You know, a tyranny is when you have a very, uh, you have a single leader who rules um, in fear uh, over their subjects. China is not a tyranny. Russia is not a tyranny in this sense. They are not, uh, nor are they autocracies, uh, you know, the rule of one. Uh, because what I tried to show in the book is that, you know, at all levels uh, from top to bottom, uh, people are connected and entangled and um, all of them are kind of caught up in a soiled solidarity. You know, everybody suffers compromat, as the Russians say. They are not dictatorships uh, of, uh, and certainly not tin pot dictatorships of the kind, you know, that Mugabe represented in Zimbabwe. Uh, they're much more efficient. Uh, they're much more orderly. They're much less violent, apparently. Um, 
and they're much better at solving problems. And they're also not fascist regimes. I think, you know, there's a bit of an upsurge uh, in popularity of that word to describe fascist Russia or fascist, you know, China. I think this is a misdescription of how they operate. Uh, they're not totalitarian. Uh, for instance, um, these regimes, these despotisms are not regimes where millions of people are afraid. They don't feel that. That's not felt uh, in China. And, and that was a characteristic of fascism uh, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and fascism in that period also required mass mobilization uh, of millions of people, you know, big rallies with uh, torchlight. Uh, Uh, actually, what I show in this book is that these despotisms encourage passivity. Uh, they like uh, their loyal subjects to go shopping in Turkey. Uh, during 20 years of Erdogan's rule, uh, the number of uh, shopping malls has increased by eight times. Um, they are regimes that allow belly aching, and there's a lot of it, uh, and a lot of it happens online. Um, but they discourage uh, mass rallies. They discourage uh, formation of groups. They don't like civil society. Um, so there's something other. Uh, so they're not autocracies. They're not dictatorships. They're not totalitarian regimes. Um, and and, uh, and so the point of the book is to try to describe and to explain why it is that we should think with fresh um, with fresh thoughts and with uh, with with a different pair of eyes uh, to make to make a different sense of, of of how they function because to repeat uh, they're going to be around for a while and they are I think a, a serious alternative to power sharing uh, democracies and in this respect Amy I think um, we're living through a period that's analogous to the 1920s and 30s. Uh, when parliamentary electoral democracies were confronted uh, by serious alternatives. Um, Stalinism, uh, fascism, and imperial Japan. And parliamentary democracy uh, almost didn't survive. Uh, by 1941, there were only 11 parliamentary democracies left on the face of the earth. Um, I think this challenge uh, to power sharing constitutional democracies with rule of law and free and fair elections and where there is a sense of citizens um, equality. I mean, I think all of those ideals and those institutions are now threatened uh, and threatened in a way as um, the threat is as great uh, as it was in the 20s and, and 30s. I think, I think uh, historians will look back on this period and see that something very major developed. Well, of course, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but one of the points of this little book, uh, which has a cover with dark, gloomy clouds on it, one of the points of this, the key point really of this book is, uh, you know, it's a precautionary tale. It's basically saying, wake up, you know, have a look around 
about you, uh, dear reader, dear citizens, and and try to make sense of uh, you know this alternative, which is a serious, a serious threat, a serious alternative to ways of life that that uh, we we love. Mm. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And um, what I am grateful for with this book, and I'm sure. I could probably speak for a number of frustrated historians, is that looking at the public discussions around these issues and what you are terming despotic governments, we see all of those terminology thrown about that, you know, totalitarianism, fascism, populism, and Nazism even. uh, And there's a real... um, I think we're doing ourselves not only a disservice, but we're being very, very inaccurate if we can't find the right language and concepts to identify what we're dealing with. We won't actually be able to deal with it appropriately if we keep on banding about terminology that was created in response to a very specific 20th century context. Yeah, I very much agree. Um, uh, you, you may have noticed, uh, Amy, in the open pages of the book, I uh, crack a little joke uh, by saying that despots could actually read this book <laughs> and, and learn a lot about how better uh, to, to rule the despotism. And, and I make um, a reference to uh, a fantastic book in the late 30s by probably he was the best Italian uh, anti-fascist writer, Ignazio Siloni, uh, who wrote, I think, in 19... 19- Thirty-eight, uh, and published a book called A School for Dictators, which is about an American who comes to Europe who wants to know how fascism uh, works and how it can be built because the American wants to go back to the United States and, you know, basically become a president, a fascist president. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a serious, ironic uh, book. Mine is in a way the same. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think, you know, the, the, the prime minister... Prime Minister Lees of the world, Singapore, uh, a leader with a million Facebook followers. Uh, the Prime Minister Lees of this world can learn a lot uh, from this book because I tried to be very accurate in in how it is in you know in in the in the detail how it is that they function. How is it that they are resilient and stay much more stable than we imagine? Yeah, and I think a lot uh, of people. But, but, but looked from you know flipping that over. Uh, um, the aim of the book, to repeat, is to to sharpen, you know, the 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 sense of 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 people uh, who read this book uh, of what's at stake and why it is that they are a threat um, to to power sharing democracy. Mm. I, I wanted to touch on one other element that you've brought up, which was individualism and that element um, within New Despotism. And you make references to Alexis de Tocqueville and his kind of early, very, very early predictions about a modern form of democratic despotism, which would really look at um, being... It would be backed by, as you say, a bourgeoisie and its selfish individualism and live-for-today materialism. And the coming despotism would encourage, quote, citizens to enjoy themselves, provided that they think only of enjoying themselves. So, I mean, that is an interesting point that you make, and you do say that um, essentially these sheepish middle class would be plump and ready for despotism. What? How do you, um, when you're looking at this new despotism, see the role of keeping an individualist or materialist society as part of that? 
Yeah, it's a double-barreled uh, question, I think, Amy. I think um, one has to do with uh, the middle classes. Um, you know, there is a story, there is an interpretation about that says that um, if you don't have a middle class, you can never have democracy. You know, there is, it's been a long-standing uh, idea in the human sciences that, that the middle classes are prone uh, to prefer free elections and, and power sharing, rule of law, democracy. These despotisms show that's not the case. Um, and in fact, their obsequience, you know, their, their subservience to the whole regime is very striking. Um, they travel, they read, um, they're definite internet users, very active on Weibo and so on, uh, but they and they grumble, uh, but they do little to disrupt the regime. And um, one of the major challenges uh, Gauntlet's thrown down in this book is to is to get at why it is that these middle classes are subservient, why it is that they're, if you like, agents of voluntary servitude uh, about individualism. Second point, I think um, in the book I point out uh, there's a strange paradox, which is that um, the ruling the ruling languages um, emphasize the importance of solidarity. You know, there's a, lots of appeals to the nation, the national pride, um, to ancient traditions. Uh, to the importance of economic growth, uh, the importance of, of political loyalty, um, even lots of talk of the growing importance of environmental responsibility. Uh, you, know, you know, there's a sort of dog's dinner of languages that, that the rulers of these despotisms peddle. Uh, and um, they don't peddle individualism. That's very rare. Uh, but the paradox is that when you look inside these despotisms, when you uh, do um, a, a, a kind of anatomy of them, as I've tried to do in this book, you find that there is a lot of pushing and shoving. Uh, there's a lot of uh, greed at various levels. There is uh, there there is an individualism uh, for all the talk in China of the importance of the family and solidarity, when you get on the roads in Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, you realize just how anarchic, you know, Chinese people on the other hand are in the way that they drive. Uh, so it's a paradox that you have, you know, in these despotisms, you have lots of official talk of, of, of uh, solidarity and of, of, of you know, bind, uh, people together, uh, and uh, on the other hand, a lot of uh, selfish individualism, and that was Tocqueville's point. Uh, you know, he he was the Frenchman who came to America in the 1830s, and he wrote one of the classics uh, of politics uh, in the modern world called Democracy in America. It's two volumes, and yes, as you say, he he worried that self. Selfishness um, and not giving a shit about other people 
could easily uh, destroy democracy. Um, and uh, and paradoxically, you know, selfishness could could be combined with despotism. That point is a very important point in uh, that runs throughout this book. Mm. Um, so you bring us to our final question, I think, which is, uh, you, I was reading through the conclusion again of this book, and you were talking about a monetary democracy and uh, the fact that it's a radical vision of public scrutiny and restraint of unaccountable power through checks and balances, citizen participation, as you can see, it's not just about the individual, but everyone participating together. And you say that a lack of monetary democracy is the greatest weakness of despotic power. And I just wanted to pick up on that and say, first up, I mean, it probably is fairly obvious how it could be a weakness, but I'd like to understand how you think it might be. And also maybe finally, if you could provide a reflection on who or what country or are there any countries where this idea of a monetary democracy is obviously not perfect, but is um, not seeing that this same level of decline and mistake and uh, Disaster decline that we that you have talked about and you reference in the introduction. Are there countries that are providing some um, positive hope for the other participatory participatory democracies like Australia and the rest? Oh, I love I love your big questions, Amy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not letting you off easily, am I? No, I I, I mean it's only it's only uh, just before eleven. O'clock in the morning here in, in Sydney, uh, but thank you very much. I uh, I think I think um, a couple of points. Monetary democracy, not to be confused with monetary democracy, as sometimes happens. Uh, I mean, I've been working for for some years on this idea that um, from the nineteen forties there was uh, uh, there was uh, uh, a sea change in democracy. So it came to mean. Um, something more than free and fair elections uh, because of the experiences of the first half of the 20th century. And democracy came to be redefined and still today at its best means not only free and fair elections, but um, but public accountability of those who exercise power, whether in the corporate world or whether in the field of government or in the field of, of organizations like Amnesty or Greenpeace, let's say. Um, monetary democracy is you know, the permanent public scrutiny and control of a power that can be abusive and can produce great evils. One thing that's uh, striking about all of these despotisms is that they try to simulate um, public monitoring of power. And I've mentioned already examples um, you know, their reliance on think tanks and public opinion polling agencies and, um, and and happiness forums and so on. But in general, uh, one conclusion of this book is that um, there is they they suffer a deficiency uh, of uh, of this uh, open public scrutiny. Case in point, if you look, uh, you know, I was I was teaching in Wuhan uh, in the first two weeks of August. Uh, I survived. Here I am. Uh, if you look at what happened in late December and early January in uh, Hubei province, where Wuhan is the largest city, you see an example of how when 
have scrutiny of power that's permitted, uh, that flourishes, and where um, uh, wrongdoers are brought to account, you see an example of what happens when you don't have monetary democracy and what I think your listeners uh, know uh, very well is that it was in Wuhan uh, and then elsewhere in the province that there was a clampdown. Um, doctors uh, were were muzzled. Uh, scientific reports, um, the first analyses of the virus that were done in Shanghai, for example, were suppressed. And the party clamped down. Uh, it behaved like a despotism does. Uh, and what it and why did it do that? Because it didn't want to spoil Chinese New Year coming up at the end of uh, January, and most importantly, because the Hubei Party had two major meetings uh, between the first week, the end of the first week of January, and around the 16th or 17th of January, so it clamped down. And what we now know uh, from independent Chinese reports is that had the party actually moved uh, to deal with the virus in the first week of January, then probably 90% um, of cases of the virus in China uh, would have been prevented. So uh, here the moral of the story I'm trying to tell is that if you don't have open public scrutiny of power, not only, not just elections, but if you don't scrutinize, you know, a government or a corporation, uh, then you you can expect trouble. You can expect um, uh, little or big uh, evils. And in the book, uh, in the dying pages, as you rightly point out, I, I, I lay on the table this point and say that it is their greatest weakness. But the flip side uh, of uh, this is that potentially the greatest strength of democracies is to cultivate uh, mechanisms of uh, the monitoring, the public monitoring of, of power. Case in point, uh, I, it's not a party political point, but I think uh, that the formation of a national cabinet in Australia for the first time since colonization uh, has been effective because it brought to the table uh, discussion um, with the national government uh, of Morrison. Uh, it brought to the table open, frank um, accounts of what was going on in um, our states and territories. And it forced onto the table open discussion and bargaining uh, and agreement about how to handle uh, this uh, virus. And of course, uh, by global standards, and it's we're up there with Taiwan uh, and with South Korea and New Zealand. Um, all four cases are examples where uh, of, of democracies where if you have that open public scrutiny of power, you have honesty, you don't have leaders who are um, peddling bullshit uh, and gaslighting uh, uh, others. When you have that open public scrutiny of power, you can better handle challenges of this kind. I think Taiwan um, and New Zealand, South Korea and Australia show that when you have that um, uh, monetary democracy, then you can 
can get, you can steer, you know, uh, uh, your way through uh, a challenge uh, and a serious crisis of this kind. Uh, we're not through it yet. Um, what's coming is, of course, potentially uh, another Great Depression, uh, which might, you know, the book was completed before all of this, uh, but it might be that a potential Great Depression, you know, radically weakens um, democratic institutions in, in many, many countries. The fact that we've had emergency rule uh, in uh, practically every democracy, uh, except Taiwan, um, uh, for instance, uh, is this emergency rule is a threat uh, to power sharing constitutional democracy. Uh, we're going to see what happens, but um, in short, you know, democracies are not yet dead. Uh, there's a lot of life left in them. Um, and, and the the prize uh, uh, will go to those democracies that actually in this crisis, you know, develop new mechanisms for handling the crisis, mechanisms of openness, of accountability. And I think I think the national cabinet is uh, is uh, is one example uh, of this in which Victoria uh, has played a very important role. Uh, I think that's clear. Yes, I would agree with you on that one. Um, I may be biased, but I also think it is very obvious that um, I know a lot of Victorians have really been turning to their Premier and um, local state cabinet as well. So we have been pretty proud to be Victorian. Um, John, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating speaking with you. And as you said, read the book because um, we've really scratched the surface and you go into a huge amount of detail and nuance. Well, uh, Amy, it's my pleasure. Um, I hope that I've not given your uh, listeners... uh nightmares tonight <laughs> but I, I you know i urge you i urge um you all to to read uh, this book it's not, not uh an academic book uh i tried to write it um with elegance and and as i say with jokes and uh and a lot of detailing of of how things actually work that you know it's a sort of literary technique of bringing to life mm. uh what could be pretty dull subject, but um, it's been my pleasure, uh, Amy. Thank you. I do think you achieved your goal. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And to continue the wonderful uh, theme and trend of politics, I'm going to be speaking with Madeline Chapman. She's a journalist and author, and she's written a biography of Jacinda Ardern, who, um, if you're unfamiliar, but surely you you would be familiar with Jacinda, it's kind of hard to miss, uh, given her prominence on the world stage. Jacinda is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and um, she's... I guess she stands out in a visual sense because she is a female leader among very few other female leaders. She's also um, quite young in a relative sense compared to her global counterparts. Uh, She's a progressive leader and uh, she's also a mother and just a new mother, I guess, when she uh, became Prime Minister. She uh, became pregnant and then had that additional element to contend with and it does very much tie in with her story, which you will soon discover uh, when we speak with the wonderful Madeline Chapman. As I said, the book is Jacinda Ardern, 
in a new kind of leader. It's out through Nero, which is an imprint of Black Ink Books. And Madeline joins me from New Zealand on Skype. Hi there, Madeline. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora to you too. I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm just in my parents' uh, wardrobe because someone's mowing the lawn outside. <laughs> I can relate to that. I was trying to do practice on the radio the other day and there was a whippersnipper right outside my window. So it's uh, it's pretty difficult, isn't it, in these times? Yeah, but it's good that people um, now in New Zealand are out and about. It's quite nice to hear noise again. Mm, that's a really excellent point. Maybe we can jump um, into that and, and share where you're at uh, currently in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, because New Zealand has been touted as uh, this really world-leading example. Yeah, so we're at, we're in what we call level two, which is uh, pretty close to to business as usual. Um, still a lot of social distancing rules and that sort of thing. But we moved down into level two because we'd had uh, quite a few consecutive days of no new cases. And today we had another day of no new cases. And that seems to be, fingers crossed, a a trend now. Uh, so people are slowly getting back. Schools started last week and everything's kind of getting back to, I guess, whatever normal is now. Yeah, and uh, certainly there's been some really impressive leadership uh, at the national level on this. Um, not just Jacinda Ardern, but of course your chief medical officer as well, who's been very prominently out there. And of course, um, her as a, a good leader does deferring to the medical advice. Um, it has been impressive though to see decisive action being taken. And it's not really a new thing for a leader like Jacinda Ardern to be um, feeling or at least appearing very comfortable taking charge of what has been in her, across her leadership, some very difficult situations. Yeah, she seems to be at her best in a crisis, which uh, no one wants, uh, you know, She's dealt with, I guess, probably three major crises in her first term as Prime Minister, and no one would want that ever. But as far as showcasing her as a leader, it's it's kind of brought out the best in her, um, especially compared to her and, and kind of, I guess, everyday, ordinary time politics. She's perhaps not as strong in those moments as she is when it comes to communicating and messaging and, and keeping everyone calm and kind of level-headed in these big moments, whether it's a tragedy or a health emergency or natural disaster or, or anything like that. So she's it's not surprising that she's done very well again with this, although I think her teaming up, as you said, with the Director-General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, who, who is also very good in a very similar way, um, has just made their success in messaging and coherent comms kind of, it's like tenfold what you would expect in another country. And that's people now just kind of assume that that's what will happen in these moments, which is good. You mm. want that in a leader, I guess. Yes, having that confidence and trust in a leader is pretty much immeasurable in terms of the positive benefit and impact that can have on a society. It is, and she, you know, it, people had their critique, their very valid criticisms of her in leading up to her election and all that sort of thing, and a lot of it was around her being quite front-facing and, and very good at media. People almost looked a bit sideways at it because 
generally if you're if you're too good at media or you're too polished, people assume it's you know it's hiding something or or it's uh, shallowness. And so her being very good at it actually was kind of roused suspicion a little bit. And then now when that's kind of all you want is someone who can actually stand in front of a camera and deliver a message confidently and with a bit of empathy, it's suddenly taken on a whole new meaning, which had these things not happened, maybe they wouldn't have been she wouldn't have needed to use it as much and it, it would have looked more like a political tool than what has become like a vital vital yeah. tool. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see how she uses Facebook and live streaming to converse with her constituents and the country and to um, provide that really direct communication, which seems pretty rare when you compare it to other leader leadership approaches around the world. Yeah, it can be... I think uh, on balance, it is it is obviously an incredibly good thing. As she's bringing a lot, her whole thing has been to promote politics and democracy to people who otherwise, generally young people who otherwise aren't that interested. And she's certainly done that. I mean, I wasn't interested in politics until the last election in 2017. That was that was the beginning of me knowing anything about politics. So she. She's done her job in that sense. I think sometimes people could view it as being a kind of um, skipping skipping over some hard questions because mm. obviously if you go straight to the people on Facebook, the people on Facebook aren't necessarily going to be asking you a question based off a briefing that they got, yeah. you know, as a, as a media um, member of the media. So there is that sense of being very accessible to the average person perhaps at the expense of being accessible to the people whose job it is to question everything and kind of hit you with those well-researched and knowledgeable observations that that you don't get on a Facebook Live for Mm. obvious reasons. That's a really excellent point because I've tuned into a few of her press conferences at different points across her prime ministership and um, if she's asked a question she doesn't really want to answer or she doesn't have a very good answer at that time, she can at times be terse and um, perhaps a little bit defensive and maybe deflect the question. And, I mean, that's not something that's new to politics, is it? But it it does seem like um, she can be quite effective, at least in shutting down a response, just like Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, can be at times. Yeah, I think any any, uh, leader of a country, I think if you can't do that, you're not going to get very far anyway. (laughs) But but it does, she has managed to toe that line. You know, I was sort of deep in everything about her... for about six or almost a year last year. Mm. And I still couldn't quite figure out which side of that line she ended up on, whether it was calculated or or truly genuine. Because if it's truly genuine, you, you don't get to be the Prime Minister by just kind of bumbling around being nice to everyone. But at the same time, it's quite hard to see how she's truly calculated because you can usually tell when people are only calculated. So she's she's maybe just one of the very, very few people who manages to be both without seeming like either. <laughs> like she's <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's it's almost hard to put the two together. They completely contradict each other, but she's mm. she's managed to fit right there in the middle. Yeah, she's she seems at once enigmatic but also uh, relatable and understandable and accessible at the same time. 
exactly which everyone says well you want your you know you want your leader to be nice and lovely and someone that you can which many people do bump into at the supermarket and they'll stop and say hello but also you want a leader who who can make the kind of cutthroat decisions on your behalf or Mm. make the decisions that no one else wants to make so you don't often get both and I think you know depending on who you talk to she is uh, perhaps too too much of the person that you can speak to you know very lovely obviously incredible communicator and and messenger but there's definitely been people who have suggested that perhaps she could use some of all some of that goodwill and political capital to actually start making these potentially unpopular decisions for the good of the country Mm, exactly. And um, maybe we can just quickly bring in one other element before we spring into some specifics from your book, because I did note on Twitter um, there was a spill of the New Zealand opposition's leadership, the National Party, and uh, we, or you, New Zealand, now have um, a, a new opposition leader and uh, a deputy leader as well. Could you share with us the significance of that and how that um, or why that has happened and whether that is to do with uh, Jacinda's success? Oh, it's definitely to do with Jacinda's success because if she wasn't successful, it, you know, there's only two. There's just the government and the opposition. So they, it's like a seesaw. You can't both be doing terribly at the same time so or doing well at the same time so her being kind of catastrophically popular currently um she started off you know labor did not receive the most votes on election night the national party did but they formed a coalition and formed a government so they already started off generally um polling below national National is just kind of a bigger beast, so it's a, the the natural way of things is for national to be ahead, and so for that to switch recently to where it's just they're just absolutely tanking, and Labour is I don't know what they got like almost sixty percent or something. So as soon as that happened, everyone knew that Simon Bridges, the former leader of the National Party, was probably had to go. He he hadn't been able to connect at all, which perhaps with another, perhaps with someone else as Prime Minister for Labour, he would have been fine, you know, like he, but just when you put them next to each other, it was like chalk and cheese in terms of personality and the ability to communicate your ideas. So he he was being made to look terrible. So that it wasn't really a surprise that he left, but it did happen quite quickly. Mm. Um, and, and now they've got uh, Todd Muller, who... Uh, honestly, people didn't really know who he was um, a month ago, which is a little bit, a little bit like Jacinda, and that she was around and certain circles knew her, but but she wasn't a hugely known MP um, all around the country. So when she was elevated to deputy leader and then to leader very quickly, that was kind of a surprise. But it was a nice surprise because she replaced some pretty dire prospects that <laughs> Labour had previously selected as leader. So the National Party basically just do what a lot of oppositions do, which is kind of implode a little bit as soon as the government starts doing well and then they take a while to find their feet again. And uh, so this this coming election, I think, will be 
pretty what you'd think I don't know uh, I don't want to make any wild predictions that then prove to be wrong but it seems like a pretty safe bet for Jacinda and Labour and then people are already kind of looking to 2023 as a a more even match up in a in a potential change in government. Mm. Yes, well, um, as the the news articles are saying, it's a September election, so it's actually not that far away given um, how long political campaigns can run for. Um, in New Zealand, what what level of lead up is there to your elections in terms of the timing? Uh, campaigns usually start about seven weeks before the election. It's not a massive. Obviously, they say you can, you know, you're mm. you're campaigning from the beginning of the year, but kind of officially in terms of the election campaign, yeah, it's about seven weeks prior to election night. Um, so Jacinda being made leader seven weeks before the election last time was like she. She essentially just it was almost like arriving at the race with no training and then <laughs> and then just going immediately. So so they they've still got it's it's close, but they've they've still got more time than Labour had in terms of Labour were in a very similar position with polling and general public perception twelve weeks out. So anything can happen in the next five weeks. And their new deputy is Nikki Kay, who for lack of a better comparison, is is quite similar to Jacinda Ardern, but for the National Party. So mm. my wild prediction was that between now and the election, she would become leader, and then it would be Nikki Kay versus Jacinda Ardern, two very similar, same age, uh, a lot of the same views, women. Uh, and in the past, they have battled each other for electorate seats and Nikki Kay has won both times. So if if that was the case, I would say it would be it would be a lot closer than, than the current leader. Yeah, exactly. Nikki Kay does come up quite a lot in this book um, because you highlight the, the seat that they have um, been battling over quite a lot. Um, and it's interesting that uh, I believe it was Auckland Central, was it? That, mm-hmm. yeah, they've been... Um, I guess, contending with. And uh, Jacinda then moved to uh, take on a different seat. And when I was doing a quick uh, search online about that seat, I was pleasantly surprised to hear that it was Mount Albert, which was Helen Clark's old seat. Um, And I was interested in that because obviously she was a female um, Prime Minister of New Zealand. In terms of the seat that Jacinda currently holds, presumably that's a safer seat. Yeah, Mount Mount Albert's a pretty safe seat for Labour, has been for a while. And typically the there's there've been a few uh past leaders of the Labour Party who are in Mount Albert. So it's not you don't wanna say that it's like a rule or anything, but there is a kind of a trend that uh the the holder of Mount Albert, which is quite a big electorate as well, in quite central Auckland is is typically pretty high in the Labour listing and quite an important figure. So when Jacinda, from kind of being a little bit the young the young MP with a bright future, when she moved to take over the Mount Albert seat, people kind of saw that as one moving to an electorate that she would definitely win because she couldn't seem to beat Nikki Kay in Auckland Central, 
and two, perhaps a, a bit of a promotion within Labour that that they were saying, yes, we want you to have this comfortable seat and become more of a face as a seat holder and, and the, within the party. And mm. then, you know, within, what, six months, she was leader of the party and <laughs> and uh, about to be prime minister. So things moved pretty quickly as soon as she moved to that Mount Albert seat. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I want to just read out the opening lines of the book because I was really struck by this and I wanted to get your insight on it. Um, You write, Jacinda Ardern did not want to be Prime Minister. I've seen how hard it is to raise a family in that role, she explained in 2014. A year later, she stated it more bluntly. I don't want to be Prime Minister. Whether this was simply a party line or a more firmly held personal one, it sounded convincing. So perhaps it surprised Ardern more than anyone else that on a bright spring afternoon in 2017, she was waiting to find out if she would become Prime Minister of New Zealand. So, I mean, it's pretty rare when a politician genuinely says they don't want to be Prime Minister. (laughs) Like often you see it as a, a you know that deflection question um, an answer from the media where they're trying to see if you're angling for a, a position. But I was really struck by that um, line that you say about was it a party line or, or a firmly held personal one? To you, it sounded convincing, um, and I guess it really came to fruition. Not only that she would become prime minister, but then she would have to juggle and discover the difficulties of raising a family. How do you um, reflect on that and the fact that her her stated personal intention and plans were much the opposite of where she's found herself in and yet she has thrived? Yeah, it's, it's quite hard to – it's another one of those ones where people will disagree on whether she was genuine when she said that because, you know, if you talk to anyone who's who's reported on Parliament – you know, for however many decades, they'll say every single person in parliament really, really wants to be the prime minister. There is not a single member of parliament who genuinely doesn't. And then maybe Mm. they'll, to be mean, list a couple of like useless MPs or something (laughs) and say, well, they obviously don't want to, but, but career backbenchers. Yeah, exactly. But, but by and large, they, they say anyone who says they don't want to be prime minister is lying either because they currently have a prime minister in their party and you can't be seen to be ambitious and potentially, you know, there's, you don't want to be saying anything that suggests that you think you could do a better job than your current leader um, or, you're an, or you're in opposition and you're just biding your time. So people, when she started saying that, every, not everyone just dismissed it as another classic, of course, you, you know, no one actually comes out when they're, 20 you know 29 or 30 and says I want to be the prime minister so people ignored it and then she just kind of kept saying it over and over and over again and even when she started being promoted within the party people wanted her to be the deputy leader she said she didn't want to be people wanted her to be the leader she said she didn't want to be so you can't but then you go if you really didn't want to be you just wouldn't Mm, you know yeah it was she ultimately did accept all of these roles. And as soon as the election started, she immediately switched into a completely new mode of obviously, I do want this, and we all want this, and you should want this too. So 
considering how quickly she could switch like that and how, you know, you start to go, well, you, you've prepared for this, whether consciously or not. And now it's all just kind of, I guess it was a bit out of her hands, you know, everything happened so quickly and she was pregnant while they were deciding who was going to be the prime minister. So, and people also didn't think she was going to become prime minister. So there's all sorts of theories you could have about her agreeing to be the leader of the party and, kind of thinking, well, we're polling so low <laughs> that the chances of me actually becoming Prime Minister are quite low. So there's maybe it's a safe bet and I can just be the leader and that's it. Yeah. So it's uh she's she yeah, she's managed to do everything that she said she didn't want to do. Which is quite funny because if you consider that to be falling upwards then she's fallen about as high as you can fall. So <laughs> she's uh but but it it, it all again seems so genuine so you go you don't want to it doesn't sound cynical that she mm. said that or that it was like a play to get people to want you know nobody wants a too eager person to lead them so no <laughs> well so, I was, yeah it's hard to tell I wonder whether you think that part of it having observed um, politics over here and I'm sure it probably has some universal elements on a gender level. But often, you know, if a woman is seen to be too ambitious, at least publicly ambitious, then there is a huge amount more backlash because she's kind of um, butting up against gender norms and stereotypes and expectations. And uh, women are obviously expected to be more humble and, um, and less kind of cutthroat and ambitious as their male counterparts. And I wonder whether it was also, um, whether or not intentional, but quite a, a good strategy. I think, it, yeah, it was a good strategy, although I think in New Zealand, probably compared to Australia, I don't know a whole lot about Australian politics, but, you know, we've had Helen Clark and Jenny Shipley as mm. Prime Ministers, both women who people would not say that they were particularly friendly and warm, at least on the outside, you know, yeah. um, how they presented, and certainly some of the moves that they made in Parliament were pretty pretty cutthroat and kind of shocked people a little bit. So when you consider that, and that was just, I mean, obviously they had to deal with all of that at the time in terms of the double standard of men doing that and it's and it's all business as usual and women doing that and it's being mean or being a bitch or, or can I say that? But, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but, you know, Jacinda was never like that. And whether she saw that and, just, and kind of decided that that's, not what she wanted to do, or it just wouldn't work. If she came out and tried to be sneaky or, you know, mm. a little bit conniving, some politicians that we have who are women could absolutely do that and people would agree or disagree, but ultimately that would just be thought of as normal. But if someone like Jacinda did that or some of the new younger women in parliament that we have, it would it would yeah, it would look pretty off and people would not be into it at all. So mm. these things were already starting to shift a bit anyway. And I think she's perhaps just sped it up in terms of now what people consider to be, I don't know, quote unquote normal in parliament. It's not considered as much of like collecting scalps and, um, you know, trying to get kills and that sort of thing. It's people don't really like that as much. 
Yeah, that's interesting that you say that and a really great observation. I I'm, was interested in um, Jacinda's early years when she was growing up, which you cover in quite a bit of detail um, in the first several chapters. And you've clearly spoken to a number of people and different sources to get a range of perspectives on Jacinda and her um, childhood and adolescence. And I was interested in some of the ways people described her, whether you could comment on um, whether they would still be a way to describe her. Um, You say that Jacinda might not have been cool, but she wasn't uncool, which was an important distinction that many former classmates are quick to make. And you also point out that she's been um, kind of characterised as a nerd, quite nerdy, and that that wasn't also a negative thing either. I wonder whether those um, characterizations have continued into her political leadership life. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely considered a lot cooler now than she was at school, which <laughs> yeah. is a bit of a reverse trend. But she, I think the what I meant by people wanting to clarify is that because she is so liked and, you know, at least on a personal level, no one has ever had an issue with her personally. People have will disagree a lot with what her government does or um, her maybe stances on some things. But in terms of just as a person, people have not been able to find faults with, with how she conducts herself. So to then, for anyone, even like, which is funny to me, you know, you should be able to say whatever you want to the about the Prime Minister. It's just you can't possibly punch up more than talking about the Prime Minister. But people were very worried about saying anything mean about her, even as a 14-year-old. So mm. when I would ask them, oh, what, because she's just, you go, she's just so nice, she wouldn't say anything mean about me, even though she probably doesn't even remember me. So when I would say, what was she like? you know, at intermediate school or at high school. And I said, you know, be honest, because this doesn't really have anything to do with her now. And they would still, you know, they go, oh, you know, she was a bit like, meh. But but obviously, like, really nice and really cool. And I said, well, everything you just said doesn't sound that cool. And then, and then they would admit that perhaps her current status had, was kind of colouring their memories of her. And in reality, much like most people at school, she was just kind of there and, you know, not mm. like the superstar popular kid or anything, just kind of the quite bookish and like to make speeches and debate and that sort of thing. So yeah. so in that sense, no one would, no one who ever went to school, if you described that student, you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's the cool kid at my school. <laughs> so... So it's that sort of thing. But obviously when you're good at something, I think you're kind of automatically a little bit cool. And she was all, and she was very good at what she did. So so that's kind of the not not cool in the in the traditional sense, but but definitely wasn't people seem to really like her and respect her. Yeah. And there are some kind of elements um, that maybe later in life when now that she's prime minister could be seen as cool uh, in comparison to her, um, yeah, male 
and sometimes female counterparts. And she's adopted some areas, policy areas or frameworks that I know a lot of uh, academics have been pushing for for a very long time that, you know, um, I guess the Nordic countries have adopted, but beyond that, it's been um, pretty slow and piecemeal. And I'm thinking uh, one of them is the wellbeing budget that she uh, put out, put forth and really stated as being one of her um, key aims. And of course, uh, coming from Australia and looking in, no doubt there's a lot more to it than that. But I just wondered, in terms of some of those social democratic uh, approaches and policy areas that she seems to have taken up and used her political capital for, do you think that that has garnered um, support like domestically or admiration or a sense of being, um, well, New Zealand's a little bit more cool than some of the other countries that are still talking about GDP and that's it? It's certainly people were very on board with the idea it's kind of like mm. the messaging thing you know all the messages were hard to not support you know everyone's on board with increasing funding for mental health services everyone's on board for you know all these things they're pretty as far as politics go pretty easy wins for a you know left of center government to propose and and, and everyone love that what where she kind of stumbles I guess domestically is that naturally the international reception of these things far as far as outsizes it completely Mm. to what the actual effect is domestically so domestically when it was announced there was immediately a lot of um genuine discussion about whether the the actual things that they were going to implement would would back up their claims that were on paper and did this amount to enough for these services and would this work in reality and obviously a lot of people some people said no and it's not enough and you know other people said it's um it's a nice idea but you're going to have to be more basically more courageous in how much you're willing to spend on this and but obviously overseas you don't you you know those conversations are boring. I wouldn't want to read about the nitty gritty of policy in Finland because, you know, it's got nothing to do with me. So, but if I heard about some kind of overarching scheme that they were going to do with this nice message, I would probably click on it and read it. So that's, that's what made it through internationally and international audiences kind of, you know, as they would, loved it and jumped on it a lot to do with just compared to the leaders that they're currently living with and so when New Zealanders see that it kind of it it kind of jars a little bit because everyone's yelling at New Zealanders you know oh you guys are so lucky you guys are so you know you should be so grateful for all of this and then New Zealanders who are going through very real struggles uh, going well, this doesn't seem that lucky, or you know, mm. this doesn't seem that great to me. So, it's a it's a classic thing. You're never gonna popular leaders are never gonna be as popular in their country as they are overseas, and that's I think people are now just getting a bit more getting a bit more used to it, and and probably liking the fact that the reception to her currently is actually quite. Is quite accurate because now the world is also going through the exact same thing and has a bit more context 
yeah. to, you know, and a bit more knowledge about what's happening. And so they can assess it a little bit better than they maybe did um, some of these more domestic only issues. That's an excellent observation. It does remind me of um, speaking to Canadians where a similar thing happened with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and there was just this kind of a whole range of people being enamoured with everything he said and announced with his gender balance cabinet and, and the flow-ons from that. But, of course, it's not always um, that rosy domestically. Uh, just before we have to finish off and... I wish we could get to everything, but I do hope people can read this book because it's so beautifully written and really, um, oh, it's such a great narrative, the way that you've put it together. So I really um, appreciate the way you've written this. Um, But I did want to pick up on something that potentially our listeners are thinking about and wondering about, which was the Christchurch terror attack. I mean, we've seen Jacinda Ardern painted on the side of um, silos and she's reached um, a point of symbolism in some cases because of the way in which she responded to that crisis. And we've mentioned um, prior the way that she has kind of risen to the occasion in some of these very extreme uh, political situations and domestic situations um, she finds herself in. In terms of the way that New Zealand has embraced refugees. And obviously, from an Australian perspective, this is a very stark comparison point, and maybe that's why I'm asking about it. Do you think that New Zealand um, and its uh, relationship and view of of refugees and its history um, of being accepting and welcoming of refugees, or at least that's how it kind of appears from an Australian perspective, has helped her to, um, to respond the way she did? No doubt it was also very much intuitive and not kind of about that but it seems like and I'm wondering about this from your perspective whether the political environment and the social environment um, and the values that New Zealanders have have been um, potentially illuminated through Jacinda Ardern whether um, whereas uh, some people might assume that she was the one role modeling it and you know New Zealanders just kind of agreed or followed it is she a product of her own environment I guess I'm asking yeah um, well, interestingly, the the Labor government and I guess Jacinda's Labor government had been getting a bit of pushback before the Christchurch attack about their their kind of halting. They had campaigned on increasing the refugee quota, which is for New Zealand's size and everything was actually quite low at. Um, might have even been 500 or 750 per year. And they had been, um, uh, they had campaigned on increasing it as Labour. And then obviously they went into a coalition with New Zealand First, who were kind of the opposite of that and, and are not huge on immigration and that sort of thing. So when that came up, when they were in government, people said, what about this? You know, remember you said you were going to double the quota or you are going to increase the quota? And then uh, Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters came out kind of basically saying, no, we're not doing that, and kind of overstepped, essentially overstepped his role into speaking on behalf of the whole government. And everyone then immediately went, oh, this, is, this has been all just talk. You're not actually going to do anything. And there was like a slight increase, and then a, and then another small increase, and then 
Uh, I don't want to get the dates wrong. I can't remember if it's just before or just after the attacks, but then the quota was doubled. But there was talk during the aftermath that New Zealand should, considering all this kind of, you know, as she spoke about, um, you know, her they are us and that sort of thing, mm. there was talk about perhaps she could actually use that um, narrative and put forward some actual policy changes to properly benefit refugees in, you know, on the ground in real life. So that there, it's improved, the quota, and that's good, and it's sort of been a long time coming for a lot of advocates in that area, but it is still, and I think now it's been, it was a real kind of unfortunate wake-up call for a lot of New Zealanders who had, had maybe particular views around immigration and refugees and had never actually had to be confronted with reality like that Mm. in little old New Zealand. And so I think in that sense, in terms of the general New Zealand stance, there's still people were quick to point out and they were correct. There is a lot of, you know, prejudice and racism still everywhere. But I think there is still there in terms of just the general awareness and perhaps empathy of other communities, it's it's improved. Yeah. A little bit, fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Madeline, for chatting with us. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I really appreciate your time and uh, congratulations on this book because it is a really insightful read and um, I really have enjoyed speaking with you today. Uh, thank you. Can I make a shout out real quick? Yeah. I'd just like to say hello to my sister, Tamara, who works in Melbourne and I think is forcing all of her colleagues to listen to this in the office. (laughs) Hello, Tamara. (laughs) Thanks so much, Madeline. All right. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.